What's going on at the Stables Theatre? I just went, that's bollocks. That's just bollocks. You've just read that in a book. Chris News Dick was a big hit when it ran for three nights earlier this year. So much so, an additional fourth night was added. Now, attention is turning to the second in Chris's trilogy, Dog Song, that will take to the stable stage between May the 11th and 13th. Book your tickets now to avoid disappointment, as they say. In this podcast, Chris talks to Stuart Bailey about the process of writing the second play and about how he builds a relationship with his audience. How at the start of a performance he says he's listening to the audience and then responds by making changes, not just between shows, but mid-performance. We started by discussing how he felt Dig had been received by the stable's audience. Last time we met, um, Dig was yet to happen. It's, it's now happened. Yeah. Um, seemed to get good audiences. How did you feel it went? Did it achieve what you wanted it to achieve? Yeah, it, it did. At a fundamental level, it did. There's a few aims for the show. The first is to test out the theatrical language that I use, which isn't a commonly used theatrical language. It kind of follows off from Beckett. And there's, I don't know of any playwrights that follow off from Beckett. I'm not saying I'm as good as Beckett, but I'm following in his territory. I suppose the last big playwright to do that was Harold Pinter. He was a devout um, follower of Beckett. Beckett here. Yeah, and he, well, he courted him, became friends with him, would send him his scripts. He was, you know, out and out. I am following in the footsteps of this great man. So my aim for all the plays is to find a way for the for the language of the play and the subject matter of the play to go beyond the momentary trivial that most theatre deals with. Most theatre deals with what's happening in the current affairs, in politics, in society, and I just have no interest in that. I don't think those things last. They would date a piece. Yeah. Whereas if you date a piece deliberately and set it in the plague, yeah. <laughs> then it becomes weirdly timeless. I don't know, there's a weird... I'm going through quite a process with the writing in a minute because I wrote the first one, obviously. Second one, I've now written and I've read it to people and it's in a much more complete state after a first draft than I thought it could be. Okay. And it came out very fast. And it came out formed in a way I don't quite understand how it was formed. It's got a continuity of image and theme and resonance in the narrative, built into the structure of the narrative that I didn't put there. And I don't know where that comes from. Which is, harking back to some of the things we discussed last time, mm. that's a sort of a theme of your career. Often something comes and you don't know where it's, where it's come from. Yeah, I, was, um, I listened to a podcast with a guy who wrote a book called The, the War of Art. He says that all creative stuff comes from like a river underneath you 
and you just have to kind of give into it and let it come out. He talks about it being common for creative people to not know where the thing comes from and why it comes out the way it does. So it feels a lot like that at the moment. The plays themselves feel... There's a lot of people who teach acting and who teach playwriting who can't write plays and who can't act. Those who can do, those who can't teach. Yeah, or, well, careful, I teach as well. Um, they've, they've shifted their focus because they can't do it. And they often come up with rules for how you act or how you write. And I'm glad to say that the plays I'm writing don't follow their rules. Like, I sent this, the play to someone when I first wrote it, and they said, oh, it hasn't got a time pressure. Every play needs a time pressure. I just went, that's bollocks. That's just bollocks. You've just read that in a book. And you're just trying to tell me it's a rule. There's no time pressure in the play, but the stakes of the play are extremely high. The interesting thing is that obviously no one knows me here. So the first first show was maybe, I don't know, half full, two-thirds full, something like that, which was absolutely great for me, lovely. First show, new audience. So I'm meeting a new audience for the first time. And the good thing about it was that the reaction in the room was extremely strong. But then what happened was that the audience grew and grew towards the end of the three nights. So on the last night, we sold something like 40 tickets in just in the afternoon of that show. So that showed to me that anybody who saw the play came out convinced of the play, of its worth. Lots of people afterwards were saying, when's the second one? When's the second one? So I was like, OK, seemed quite keen on that. So that to me feels like a proof of concept because what I essentially want to do is build a direct relationship with an audience that doesn't require any intermediary theatre or company. Because it used to be that I'd go to the RSC and I'd be, I'd have a relationship with their audience mm -hmm. via the RSC but the RSC would be the primary relationship. But now you can have a direct relationship with your audience. And you came upstairs to the bar after each show and actually met the audience. Yeah, that's... That, that was quite deliberate, wasn't it? Yeah, so at the end of every show, I say to everybody, you know, come and have a drink afterwards in the bar and talk to me if you like. And that's great because it helps me hugely understand what they're receiving because I don't know what they're receiving. Mm. On stage, my experience of the performance on stage is extremely technically minded. I'm not experiencing the play, the audience are. I'm creating a deliberate illusion within the audience's head. So my head is full of things like, oh, where's, has that prop fallen over? Mm. I should go faster here. Oh, maybe I'll move this. Okay, yeah, I'm going to move this bit around. I often rewrote on, during the show. Right. And because it's a one-man show, I can. And it's mine. I can do whatever <laughs> I like. That was going to be my next question, actually, be between shows. And obviously you were doing it during shows. But did, given the feedback that you were getting yeah. after each show, did you make tweaks for the next performance? Yeah, so I class it more like a stand-up show than a play. 
Like, I can alter the language of the text every, of the play every night. There's no one following the script, it's relatively. There's kind of a general lighting change and stuff, but they, they can just go. There's nothing specific that has to happen on a specific line. So I c I'm completely in control of the show. And so I can move whole sections around. Mm. I've rephrased bits. Each night I tried certain sections completely differently. Um, and some of my friends, I had a friend who was helping me with the front of house and she was meeting friends of ours and things and kind of being a host in the foyer. And she watched the show every night, not at my insistence, <laughs> but just because she wanted to. Um, and she said it was a different show every night, like a dramatically different show every night. And does some of that, and again, because it's a one-man play, does some of what you're doing in terms of the changes and changing the, the, the tone as you move through, is some of that coming from the reaction you're getting from the audience? Yeah, some of it will be immediate. Like, I'll pick up on a feeling in the room, like before the show, and then I'll come at the show at a different rhythm or at a different angle depending on the feel I get from the audience. Often for the first five or ten minutes, I'm just really listening to the audience as I'm working, trying to work out, trying to get them, trying to coalesce them into one group. And often that can take a bit of cajoling. You're kind of just trying to corral them all into one, one thought group. So the first, sometimes the first 15, 20 minutes, I'll, I'll feel very lost. I won't know what's happening. I won't know where to pitch it, what's working, what's not. And I just have to keep going and keep going and keep going and be careful, don't rush, don't rush. Just carefully move it into place. And then you feel it click and the room goes dead silent and the focus gets really sharp. Um, but it's weird because essentially for the whole hour of the show I just sit and talk. Mm. There's no great drama or movement or anything but people just did not move an, an inch I when I was watching it and looking at the, the did lighting did you fall asleep <laughs> <laughs> but looking at the lighting in the set I, I remembered what you told me about right back at the start when you were training and learning to design the light and build the lighting rigs yeah and was all of that in my head I, I you know, that to me, was all, all your work. As you were writing the piece, were you thinking about how it was going to be lit and how, how that would work? Kind of. Um, all of that comes secondary to the text. Mm. So the text is forthright. Like, already, I'm going to do Dig again. We're going to do two shows of Dig when we do the next play. So that anybody who hasn't seen it, for two reasons, anybody who hasn't seen the first play can catch up. And I'm going to run the f parts one and two on the same evening to see if they can run through as one show with an interval. So that's a little test I can do. But already I'm redesigning Dig for that run. I'm going to simplify it even more. Because I suppose if it becomes act one of a, a longer piece, then it has to be structurally slightly different. And I just think it's got more strength the simpler it goes. Hmm. 
because I really the focus I'm really keying into this idea now that I really am making the play is in the audience's head it's not on the stage so I almost had too much stuff on the stage still even though it was basically just a blank stage wasn't it yep like with with three zones Mm. that was it wasn't it um but yeah, all of that stuff, the good thing about the training that I did, as we discussed last time, is that, yeah, I walked in and there was Elliot, the technician, who was helping me, but I just knew how to do everything. I was like, okay, I want uplighters there, I want side lights here, I want that on a 50-second fade, I want that on a follow-on. So I just told him exactly what I wanted, and then we cracked on. And I made all the pro. I made everything... I just knew I just know how to do all that stuff. I've got no fear of doing any of that stuff. So I could really focus on how to actually do the show. How did it feel coming back on stage? I mean, we talked the last time about you stepping back, you fired your agent, you closed down your social media, so it really did step fully back from, mm. from what you were doing. How did it feel to, to step out on stage in front of an audience again? Did you did you feel at home? Yeah, like being on stage is absolutely fine for me. It's a totally natural environment for me to be. I think the good thing about it was that it felt it felt like the correct place to be because I was it was there was a merging between my acting style the and the work I was doing whereas previously I was always doing other people's work. And the majority of the time, I didn't care. I had no interest in what they were trying to discuss. You were doing a paid job. Yeah, I was just there for the money. I cared about doing a good job, but I didn't give a shit about communicating the play because most of the plays I thought were a total waste of time. Mm. They were just a vague idea that a director had, you know, we'll do Twelfth Night in Edwardian costume. Hooray. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Who fucking cares? Like, what's that doing to the world? How's that digging down into your soul and showing you something different? There's one thought I've had a lot recently since I did the play, which is that I'm going in completely the opposite way of culture. So while AI is taking over and chat GPT and the whole world's going online, I'm doing the opposite, which is I'm... Going analog. I'm going totally analog, yeah. I'm just going into a room with a small group of people and speaking to them without any electronics, just live. But I I get the feeling like that's the right way to go. Like, if the internet and the, the world online becomes this un, unlimited, fantastical place with no barriers and no boundaries in its possibility, then we're gonna want human beings in rooms that we can trust and that aren't fake and that aren't manipulated manipulated, and that are talking about real things. And I suppose by having the control that you've, you've had because you've, you've written, directed, produced, got it all in your own hands. It's, it's, mm. it's yours, you invested in it. You have complete ownership of it and yeah. passion for it. 
Well, and the good thing is that I'm I'm starting to trust my instincts now because everything, all the choices I seem to be making seem to be correct, or at least correct enough for where the production's at and what the production's doing. And you know, they might change in the future as I develop and learn more about it because I'm I'm learning about the plays as I go through them as well. Like I'm learning now that I probably don't need the soil. I probably just don't need that. But before the run, I'd never have thought that. I'd have thought the soil was absolutely vital. Didn't you say that you, you had done something similar to Dig once before and the audience had kind of misunderstood? They thought you had killed your partner rather than that the partner had died from the plague. Yeah, what an early reading of it I did. They thought that I'd killed her, mm. yeah. Which is obviously a mistake in my writing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's a very different interpretation yes. of the play. Yes. But that's a good lesson. Like One of the lessons I think you need to learn when you're writing, you should never ask people if they think the play's good or not. You should ask people what happens in the play. Because the answer you get back might not be anything to do with the play that you think you've written. So you say, like, what happens in this scene? What do you see? Who is this person? And they'll give you their, their ideas. And you can decide whether, whether you want to let that stay the way it is or whether you need to tweak it. Oh, dear. So I say things like, what happened there? And what's that bit about? Or someone will mention that. I'll say, well, what, what do you think is happening there? Why did he do that? And they'll tell me. And then if they're, if they're giving... If they're in the right ballpark, then I know I'm in the right place. So part two. Yeah. How does that, how, how, how do we develop, how do we move on? <laughs> or do you want that to mean a surprise? He's, he, uh, he goes on a solo journey. So you could class the first play as a journey with her and in the second play he goes out on his own. He goes out into nature in the second play. There's a lot of animals in the play. Um, Is that to isolate himself from the plague or...? No. The, place, the play starts to slightly untether itself from time. Right. It doesn't become so. It doesn't remain so literal. Yeah. It starts to live in a bigger kind of mythology. It's not shit. Yeah. As my review, either plays a shit or not shit. <laughs> and this, it's not shit. I read it. So when I when I write plays, I've got a friend who's quite supportive of my writing and encouraging to me. So I like to repay her in, with a kind of gesture of always going to her kitchen table and reading the play there first so we'll get like a handful of friends around the table give them all a glass of wine and they can listen to me read the play and I read part two and none of them none of them moved and I thought oh god this is awful <laughs> is this good or bad yeah and they were like I got the second parts in in three acts it's a longer play um, it's like 90 minutes. Uh, and I got to the end of the first act and kind of went, okay, that's the end of the first <laughs> act. They went, carry on then. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right, good. 
so they were but it's weird because the more you write it the the less i understand why it's interesting mm. i don't get that i mean you're saying about the fact that it, the second piece has come more quickly and in a more complete form than mm. than, than dig did is that is that sort of like for want of a better taking the taking the cock out of the bottle, so the flow has already started and it's and it's continuing. Or I think I'm I think I'm trusting what comes out more. So with dig, it came out in it comes out as kind of like snatches, and then I have to order them. So it's almost like themes or sections. So you've got the section of that. Let's talk about that. That section about there meeting the father or whatever it all it all comes out in complete sections but the order is not given to me so i have to print what i do is i print the scripts out and i cut them up and i stick them up on the wall and i move them around and dig it took me a long time to move the play around i moved it around a lot like there's two completely different versions of the play which about three weeks before we did it here i was completely didn't know which one to go with and I ended up going with the majority of one with a couple of tweaks from the other but it took that long to get it into the right and I think it is now well no because I tweaked it during the run (laughs) but I think it now is in the right shape all the bits are in the right position because often the bit can be right the information in the bit is right but if it's in the wrong position in the play, people don't hear it mm. and people don't pick up on the information correctly and in the correct order um, for it to have the right resonance. So that seemed to work. With the second play, it came out again in bits, big bits, big chunks, sections, images here, sections there, and I did the same. I printed it all out, cut it all up, put it on the wall, but this one, just it just all came together much, much quicker. You can now find our podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for Stables Theatre Hastings. Then, if you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review. And that way you'll be helping other people find our growing catalogue of podcasts. If you want to book tickets for the Stables Theatre, call the box office on 01424 423 221 or go to stablestheatre.co.uk.